Hello, and welcome to Jamilcast. Over the course of the series, you've heard from members of the Jamil Institute, speaking on their research and their expertise. But we aren't just a room of scientists quietly scribbling away. It's just as much about our collaborations, our outreach, and our communications. To this end, every year we host our Jamil Institute Symposium, an event bringing together experts from across the globe to share our findings and our understanding together towards tackling the biggest public health questions. This year's symposium looks at the impacts on public health caused by climate change. To see out the series, we thought we'd share with you some highlights from presentations across the symposium. We hope this can give you a bit of insight into these events and also teach you a few things about how our understanding is growing, about how climate change is impacting the world's health. To start the day off, we heard from Professor Ralph Toomey, co-director of the Grantham Institute, a climate change research centre, to set the scene on the scale of the challenge. Behind Ralph, as he spoke, was an image, a coloured bar showing the amount of degrees warming over the last hundred years, a cool blue at the start, moving into a scattered orange, and then there's us now, 2023, with nothing but deep shades of red. Ahead. I think it's actually quite useful to have sort of rules of thumb. And that's what I call the uncommon becomes common. And the generation now, well, what are they looking forward to? And I think this is another important point, which some people, I'm sure everybody in the audience grasp, but I think I'm, I'm afraid some people don't completely grasp. You've got different emission scenarios here. You've got high, you've got intermediate, low and very low. So very low would be very aggressive. But actually, if you look at it, no matter what we do, you are in red, right? So this is not like uh, air pollution. You stop the emissions and you can, you can sort of try and get back to uh, normal. We're not going back to normal. We are committed. We are committed to red. We are red, red, deep red, if you're not careful. But red, it's going to be. And going back to my other diagram about the unseen, we are only just beginning to enter this red zone. Right? So, so actually, in terms of what that means in terms of extremes, we have absolutely no idea because all of our data is, is this. So there's a little bit of warming. So if you were wondering to know, well, what is an extreme event? It might be a one in 50-year event or something that's really catastrophic. You've got no idea. And in fact, we have no idea. But what we do know is that we are committed to it. We are committed to this level of warming for, for the current generation, for many generations to come. And we have very little understanding of what that means. Because carbon is in the atmosphere for thousands of years, you have a budget. Every, every, every molecule of CO2 you put in the atmosphere adds. You're just filling the tap. You're, you're not draining the tap by stopping the emission. You're just filling the bathwater. So that's your budget, and you've got various uh, targets, and we are not within uh, re reaching them at all. Of course, on a positive note, what we need is lots of change across all the sectors. Um, so that's the, that's the first statement. Um, there needs to be upscaling of the mitigation and adaptation options, including what we'll hear about today. So it needs to be more than field trials. It needs to be all the way up to on continental scale, all, all encompassing. And there's high confidence that actually the solutions are here. And I think you hear about some of the solutions today. One of the more successful attempts to curb greenhouse gas emissions over the last few years has been the formation of a carbon market system a financial tool to incentivize polluters to reduce their emissions so that good behavior is rewarded 
and heavy polluting is financially penalised. Here's Professor Lorde Pru from the Imperial Business School reflecting on the successes of the scheme so far and how it can be improved going forward. Today I wanted to tell you more about the flagship policy that the European uh, Union has implemented in order to address greenhouse gases and really what are the missed opportunity in the context of that policy and how our work contribute to identify these missed opportunities and, and why it suggests that we should really do more. So as Ralph has shown to you, uh, where we're heading and what we plan to do in order to address greenhouse gas emission is by far really not sufficient. So what's going on with those policies? Why are we so far from what we should do? So looking at the sources of greenhouse gas emission, what are the main sources? We keep talking about this. It's the power sector. Generating energy and electricity is uh, one of the major sources of emission. And the other is the industry. That's really the two types of sources that are being targeted and regulated by the emission trading systems. So what is the emission trading system? It's by far the largest scheme that has been implemented in Europe. People also call it carbon pricing. So you have on the left-hand side, just as an example, an efficient power plant. Uh, and on the right-hand side, let's just assume that we have an older power plant that's less efficient. And for that power plant, the less efficient one, it's quite expensive to reduce its CO2 emissions. So what the carbon market does is that uh, it allocates initial uh, permits and then firms have to make a choice. They need to decide, do I reduce my emissions? If it's cheap, that's what they're going to do. Or do I, it's too expensive and I just uh, cover my emission with a permit or I just buy it from the market. Okay. So what happened is that we have a transfer from the efficient firms on the left-hand side to the right-hand side. And from an economic perspective, first, it's very efficient. First, because the policymakers have control of the entire cap. So compared to a tax, you know, if you think of cigarette taxing, we have a tax and we don't know by how much people will change their behavior, right? They will reduce their cigarette consumption, but depending on their preferences, we don't really know what we're going to achieve. Whereas when we're not imposing a tax, but this kind of permit, we have perfect control in terms of who is regulated and by how much we're going to reduce these emissions. So in that sense, it's working well. And in the context of CO2, because we don't care where it's being emitted, it doesn't matter. So if we have loads of efficient firm transferring them to, uh, let's say, um, East, uh, East Europe, it doesn't matter. Overall, we are minimizing our greenhouse gas emission and at the same time, minimizing the cost of reducing those greenhouse gas emissions. So that's really where the, the, the attraction of the carbon market came from. In terms of the evidence, we've done a lot of work in, in, in demonstrating that it has reduced uh, CO2 emissions. On, on the first phases, there was no carbon leakage as well, because that's one of the concerns, you know, that, that firms just leave Europe and go to unregulated countries. That was not the case. And there was also evidence demonstrating that, you know, putting pressure on the CO2 emissions has generated a lot of uh, innovation uh, as, as a result of the policy. So it seems to be going all too well, but there's now thing that we start really thinking about and that policymakers haven't taken into account. And that's where I really would like to make a point in terms of misopportunity. The equivalent emissions for one ton of carbon CO2, what are the other co-pollutants that a firm is emitting at the same time? 
For one ton of CO2, it also emits sulfur oxide, uh, you know, NOx, carbon monoxide, PM, and so on. They're all very harmful to health. And what you can see is that for one ton of CO2 emitted, the intensity of this core uh, pollutant being emitted is very different between the two types of firms. So the efficient one has generally, the orange one, has a low ratio of other co-pollutant being emitted, whereas the inefficient one, for the same amount of CO2, emits quite a lot of um, dirty stuff in the air, right? So what we are doing in our research now is to say, okay, so this trade that we didn't care about, we were happy to reduce CO2 emission by minimizing the cost, no matter where they were taking place. Well, actually, it's not the same thing when we think about air pollution and air quality, right? We need to understand what this kind of policy do to the air quality in Europe and who is really winning and, and, and losing from this kind of implicit trade in terms of co-pollutant. So when we are doing the cost-benefit of these policies and when there's all these debates, when we have very strong and powerful industry lobby coming and saying we are affecting their productivity, we are affecting their competitiveness and so on, we, are also, we also don't have the argument and the values to show that, yes, but the health benefit for the population are really large and this should be taken into account, right? So I think the message here, if you have to remember anything, is that we have a missed opportunity by not taking into account all these core cool benefits that would really justify tougher policies in order to address the CO2 emissions. So now, how do we do that? And the reason why probably, um, you know, this is not taken into account is that it's fairly complex in order to do it properly. So just to give you a brief picture of how we are um, doing this in, into uh, various projects. It's very data intensive. So we need to have information about all these firms. And what is very tricky to get is what we call the abatement cost. We need to be able to estimate it at the firm level in order to know what's the impact of putting a price on CO2. If I don't have that information, I don't know who's going to increase or decrease their emission. Remember the two firms that I've shown. So we can't just make general statement or using ex-ante analysis. We need to be able to derive at the firm level how they respond, each of them, by sectors and really by the specificities to uh, changes in prices. And once we have this, then in order to do it properly, we need to have uh, atmospheric dispersion model in order to understand what the primary, where the primary pollutant go and where the secondary type of pollutant are also traveling to and, you know, who is actually indirectly affected by changes quite far away. So we're doing this very data intensive, a lot of hand matching, many years of my life. So to conclude, what do we need to do is take into account that this policy really have non-homogeneous effects on the population. Uh, it might, we might have losers and winners, as I've uh, pointed out regularly. Um, and we need to do much more in order to mitigate our greenhouse gases emissions. And for that, we need to adopt a much broader perspective. I've been looking at cost-benefit um, analysis in the context of healthcare, where we're only looking at cost-benefit from a hospital perspective, and we now need to really take into account our greenhouse gas emissions and, and how it changes our decision-making when we have a much broader and much more inclusive perspective. Thank you very much. As Law hinted, emissions isn't just about greenhouse gases. It's also about the quality of the air that we breathe. We also heard from Professor Frank Kelly, the Director of the Environmental Research Group at King's College London and the Deputy Director of the MRC Centre for Environment and Health. If we think back 70 years or so, the UK 
the main power source, the main fossil fuel we used was coal. And I don't know if any of you were up high, as I was this morning around 7 o'clock, and if you looked out across London, it was an absolutely beautiful morning, and we had a lovely clear sky. Uh, you never saw that in those days because of the emissions coming, coming from coal, as it was our main fossil fuel. And the reason things have changed is we eliminated the use of coal from our life. Uh, we had the Clean Air Act that came in in 1956 with, you know, it shut down all these power stations and moved them outside the urban areas, stopped you burning coal in your domestic settings. And we've had a real air quality benefit because of that. But, of course, that's not the case for many places across Europe. And you'll see that over in uh, Eastern Europe, then there is a, a much slower removal of coal from their, their system. And in fact, quite often when we have an air pollution episode now in the UK, it's because of those, emi those emissions from Eastern Europe being brought in to the UK on particular meteorology conditions. So we know that good policies which remove pollutants uh, fossil fuel-derived uh, pollutants can improve air quality big time. However, of course, as we removed coal from our system, we brought in an awful lot more road transport. And this led to the uh, dramatic increases in the emissions of these tiny particles, we call them PM2.5, and with the, uh, the increase in diesel vehicles in the fleets, then we had a lot more NO2 NOx as well. And a few years ago, we had some hope that we were actually going to bring in policies which would remove these as well, eventually, from our environment. The UK was going to lead the world by banning the, the sale of fossil fuel vehicles, combustion engine vehicles, by 2030. You all know that this has recently been pushed back to 2035. That was a really progressive policy and would have in due course, made a lot less uh, pollutants being uh, released into our environment. So let's now think about really this high climate change going forward. You've heard all the doom and gloom from Ralph this morning. It's 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 re it's really not uh, great, is it? And I'm going to add to that now because clearly some of the uh, changes in temperature. Uh, our, our, the chemistry of our atmosphere, it's going to have further negative effects on the air we breathe. So I'm going to give you some examples of how that's going to happen. Well, first of all, we're going to have more intense extreme weather events. One of those is, uh, is forest fires uh, and peat fires. And, you know, we see this regularly now in, in the media right across the world. We're seeing a lot more uh, emissions from these forest fires. I think we've had major fires in Greece every year for the last five years. But this is a worldwide issue. And clearly, forest fires produce a lot of pollution. And as they become more severe, more intense, then that's only going to increase further. And smoke from these burning fires, it lingers. It, it's not as if it disappears. Yeah, it lingers in the atmosphere. It moves around from, from different regions to different regions, traveling often thousands of miles. So when there's a major forest fire in, uh, in Asia, quite often that those particulates will end up in the west coast of America, for example. 
Climate change also is drying things out. We're seeing more severe droughts. Uh, that's increasing desertification, but it's also just drying out normal farmland, uh, which means that whenever there is some wind that moves across those fields, there will be more entrainment of, of the, the soil particles up into the atmosphere. Ozone. Ozone's an interesting pollutant. It's not one that you normally talk about, certainly in the UK. So we normally talk about the small particles, PM2.5. We talk about the gas, nitrogen dioxide, both bad for our health. Social injustice. This is another big issue. We know that, that air pollution often is greatest in areas where, which are socially deprived. And in particular, those communities, they're not producing a lot of the pollution because most of them don't own cars, for example but they tend to actually be in the, the poorer areas where there's a lot of busy roads, etc. So we think that because of the lack of green space and heat island effects with uh, we're going to see increasing with, with climate change, then there's going to be uh, the risks are going to be even distributed uh, more unevenly. And then finally, climate change and air pollution are bedfellows. So if you address one, you're really addressing the other as well. And that's why it's a win-win situation for the planet if we reduce and eventually eliminate fossil fuel use. Now, there's one pretty big category of viruses we actually have barely talked about at all in this series, and that's arboviruses. Viruses spread by insects, most commonly by mosquitoes. Arboviruses are extremely relevant to the climate change discussion. The main reason we don't have to worry about diseases like malaria and dengue in Europe is because our climate simply isn't suitable for mosquitoes. Thanks to climate change, that's no longer true. Each year currently sees new record highs of cases of such viruses appearing in southern Europe, as climate change causes the world's mosquito populations to inch ever further from the equator. To learn more about this, here's Dr. Ilaria Dorigati from within Imperial talking more on this her area of research expertise. So what are arboviruses? So arboviruses cause climate-sensitive diseases, and we are talking about viruses such as dengue, zika, chikungunya. These are viruses that uh, spread and uh, circulate endemically within the human population. But we are also talking about zoonoses. It's viruses such as yellow fever and West Nile virus that circulate within the animal reservoir, and then occasionally they spill over into the animal, into the human population. So these viruses pose a high burden of infection and disease. They cause a high economic burden as well, and they can cause severe disease. So for instance, dengue is a childhood disease in high transmission settings, for instance, in Southeast Asia. And dengue can cause dengue hemorrhagic fever, dengue shock syndrome that can lead to death. Just to give you a sense of the kind of rising number of cases of dengue, for instance, these have been increased over the years. And just from last year to this year, there has been a ninefold increase in the number of cases reported. And clearly, this, is, this isn't just driven by improved surveillance, improved reporting. There is something else ongoing. And what do these diseases have in common? Well, they are spread by mosquitoes. And this is why these diseases are climate sensitive. So effectively, the mosquito biology is driven by climate. So mosquitoes are ectotherms. It means that they cannot regulate their body temperature. And therefore, all the stages in mosquito development are affected by temperature. So from the moment that mosquitoes a leg in water to the moment these eggs develop into larvae, pupae, and then from when the mosquito emerges and becomes an adult mosquito, well, all these stages are driven by the temperature of where these mosquitoes live in. 
And it has been shown that there is an optimal temperature for all these traits. So for instance, you know, the adult lifespan as well as the biting rate and the rate at which, at which mosquitoes develop really are affected by climate. There is a temperature optimum, but also there is a specific range outside which these mosquitoes cannot live. And this is why these mosquitoes are geographically contained into specific regions so far. So um, this is our understanding of, of the effect of climate, but what about climate change and arboviruses? And I'm sure you have seen many headlines really attributing the rises in the number of cases and the more um, severe epidemics caused by these viruses due to climate change and, and warming conditions. And as has been mentioned already, you know, in a few days at, in Dubai at COP28, we will have for the first time a health day where really there will be a discussion around the climate um, effects um, and the health impacts of climate change. So what is this evidence? So um, there is agreement around the fact that really arboviruses and these mosquitoes will expand their geographic range. So that means that mosquitoes will move north and south towards the poles. Um, over the short term, it is expected that both mosquito species will increase their risk to human populations, but over the long term, it will be the Aedes aegypti mosquito that will cause a higher risk, and this is due to their higher thermal tolerance. Overall, all of the estimates point towards an increase in the population at risk, and this is established both uh, using different indicators like climate and environmental suitability, as well as transmission potential indicators. I would argue that it's not just a matter of number of people at risk. The population that will be at risk is populations that haven't seen the virus before. And so it's populations that will be completely susceptible. There is no immunity to the viruses that can lead to explosive outbreaks and, and epidemics in these populations. And a couple of studies have actually started estimating the increase in the number of cases. And, and for instance, it has been estimated that committing to reducing warming to below two degrees can actually save 2.8 million cases a year in Latin America. Going a bit beyond arboviruses, well, there is clear evidence that climate change can lead to increasing the spillover of unknown viruses. So it's, it's understood, and our understanding at the moment is that with warming temperature, species will change their distributions. So new species will aggregate at higher elevation. There will be kind of hotspots of, you know, encounters between these species that can cause crossovers and cross-infection. Eventually, that means we will probably face more pandemics and more frequent pandemics going forward. So there are new vector control strategies that are highly successful. They are effective and they are self-sustainable. There are new vaccines. So the Takeda vaccine has just completed phase three trial. It has been licensed in a number of locations. And there is a new promising uh, vaccine developed by the NIH and Butantan Institute uh, that really shows some promise and is currently in phase three trial. There is also antiviral. So um, we have worked with um, JNJ looking at the impact of new candidates from in vitro and in vivo studies. And these antivirals really show high efficacy at really reducing the viral load uh, of infected patients. So it is in this context, you know, looking at the impact of climate change as well as intervention on the dynamics of diseases that there is a research program ongoing in the department. This is work that has largely been funded by, by Welcome. And our objective really is to develop new methods to account 
for climate drivers in transmission disease models. This is models we do, where we do not just look at the impact of association, but where we try and capture the infection process between humans and mosquitoes. And, and, and our vision is to really calibrate these models to time series data and transmission intensity maps to really generate uh, impact of climate change, both on the transmission dynamics, but also taking into account of intervention in a way. So to kind of estimate what the offset of climate change is on the, on the impact of our new interventions uh, that, that, that are coming up. Um, there are some challenges and there are some uncertainties. But when there are challenges, there are opportunities. And I would argue that these questions and other you know, important questions really can be addressed by co-designing and co-developing studies, not just uh, working in isolation, but very much with interdisciplinary research between and, you know, epidemiologists and modelers with climate scientists, entomologists, people who develop these interventions like diagnostic vaccines and therapeutics, as well as policymakers. Depressing though it is, we hope these short extracts can help give you an insight into the far-reaching impacts of climate change and just a small slice of the work being done to try and understand the scale of what we're walking into. Over the last 10 episodes, we've heard about everything from modelling software, cost-benefit analyses, intervention schemes and artificial intelligence. And it's truly been a pleasure getting to share our stories and work with you. And so we leave Series 1 of Jamilcast, for now at least, to get our noses back to the grind. You can follow the Institute on Twitter at at imperial underscore Jamil for all the day-to-day updates and new findings as we continue to work step-by-step to tackle disease threats, to shape public health policy, to slowly improve the healths of people the world over. So, for one last time, I've been Tom Rawson, this has been Jamilcast, and thanks so much for listening.